A banquet was held in Phoenix in March 1890. The guest of honor had come to be feted by the mayor, the governor, and all the leading territorial citizens. Wine flowed like water at the governor's mansion, which had been decorated to the nines with flags, flowers, and bunting. Anyone who was anyone came out for the event, and the man of the hour was the toast of the town for days and weeks to come. For this man, it was a shocking turnaround from just several short years ago. Back then, he had been lampooned, derided, and slandered by these same newspapers that now tripped over themselves to sing his praises. The citizenry that now lined up to slap his back had once conflated him with the enemy and bemoaned the careful scrutiny that they now all praised. Heck, it wasn't that long ago that he had lost his job for four years before finally being able to reclaim it. But all that didn't matter now, because now this man, U.S. Surveyor General Royal A. Johnson, had fired from his Tucson office the shot that gravely wounded James Addison Rivas's Peralta Grant. Though it would take five more long years and a high-stakes court case before the whole thing was settled and Rivas finally fessed up to his multitude of crimes, Johnson's initial blow against the fictitious Grant was the wound that would eventually cause it to bleed out and expire. And for the people of Arizona, that definitely was worth celebrating. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 139, The Baron of Arizona, Part 5, Adverse Report of the Surveyor General. Welcome back, everyone. As you can probably tell, I have gotten my voice back, so thanks for sticking it out last week while I still sounded like I had a rubble in my throat. But last week was also an important episode as I introduced Carmelita, the Baroness of Arizona and heir of the Peralta family, who was basically Rivas's ace in the hole to make sure people took him and his claim to more than 12 million acres of Arizona and New Mexico seriously. And they did take them seriously, with the pair making quite the splash in high society in New York, Madrid, and London. I mean, they met Queen Victoria, for heaven's sakes. But all good things must come to an end, and Rivas was called home in the first half of 1887 to deal with a few hiccups and a minor cash flow problem. Landing in New York, he set to work on Act 2 of his great land scheme. However, Rivas was no longer content shaking down a bunch of yokels for whatever he could. That well had dried up and every landowner in the Peralta Grants boundaries had spent the last two years vowing not to give this supposed baron one inch or one penny. Now, this latest iteration of his scheme targeted not landowners fearing for their property, but some of the nation's brightest businessmen who feared missing out on an opportunity. Through his powerful supporter Roscoe Conkling and others, he had access to financial tycoons whom he could all pitch on this strange, enchanting land of Arizona that was ripe for development. Soon he was forming a plethora of companies all starting with Casa Grande, like the Casa Grande Company of Arizona, the Casa Grande Company of New Jersey, the Casa Grande Company of Wyoming, etc., etc., so on and so forth. 
and each of these was pitched as bringing civilization to the West in the form of constructing roads, canals, dams, railroads, tunnels, telephone and telegraph lines, and mines for gold, silver, copper, and coal. Then there were the businesses to be built up around the raising, buying, breeding, and selling of livestock, for curing and canning meats, and for growing and canning fruits and vegetables. Other business interests would control water rights, which was especially important for all the dams and reservoirs he aimed to build. After renting out an entire floor of the Fifth Avenue Hotel New York, Revis gathered around him everyone interested in buying some of the $50 million worth of stock in his new company for 100 bucks a share. For each investor, he also laid out every single document corroborating his ownership of the Peralta Grant, a stack of ancient paperwork that had been greatly enhanced during his sojourn in Spain. One of the men he won over was the noted lawyer Robert Green Ingersoll. Brilliant in the courtroom, fiercely anti-corruption and bureaucracy, rabidly anti-religious and definitely iconoclastic, Ingersoll would become one of Revis's most devoted supporters. Ingersoll went through all the documents that Revis presented and determined that here was a shrewd businessman who had been kept from what was rightfully his by buzzing flies of journalists, thick-headed pencil-pushing low-level bureaucrats and obtuse judges. It's really telling of Revis's skill that one of the best American lawyers of the 19th century was snookered by his fake documents. In fact, when the Casa Grande Corporation incorporated, it proudly announced that none other than the famed Robert Green Ingersoll would be its first president. Seeing the sheer roster of notables that were flocking to Revis's business, the San Francisco Examiner would later remark, quote, No scheme of modern times had been supported by such an array of eminent public men, and no understanding has had such a vast amount of capital centralized for its success. End quote. Added to this was a syndicate of leading businessmen in California who invested $30,000 and agreed to pay Revis $2,500 a month for his legal expenses as he pushed for the Peralta Grant to be recognized by the U.S. government. All with the understanding that, once recognized, they would get their share of the pie. Revis made such promises left and right, though as any good con man would do, he kept things vague, never saying what part of the grant the various investors would receive, and making sure to insert the clause that they gained nothing until the grant was recognized. And that last clause might have given some people pause if it had not been for the testimony of a man named James O. Broadhead, a noted St. Louis lawyer, a congressman, and a future ambassador to Switzerland. Called to New York at the behest of Conkling and Ingersoll, Broadhead would also examine the documentation and swear to the Peralta Grant's veracity. And that endorsement really helped keep the fish swimming into Revis's net. Now with innumerable powerful and wealthy people lining up behind him, tons of cash on hand, and the living heir to the property, it was time for Revis to make his second go at forcing through the Peralta Grant. So, in August 1887, he again stepped off a train in Tucson. By now, his hair had turned gray, and he was sporting a splendid mustache that blended into a truly magnificent set of 19th century sideburns. He also arrived with something of an entourage, including his wife, 
a young lady who he claimed was Carmelita's third cousin and another member of the Peralta family, an older gentleman he introduced as his uncle, his personal secretary-slash-original crooked lawyer, Cyril Barrett, and his chief thug-slash-bodyguard, Pedro Cuervo. This group took over a full half of the Hotel San Javier, with Rivas signing the book for this party as James Addison Peralta Rivas and the Baroness Peralta Rivas. Eventually, he would again darken the door of the U.S. Surveyor General for the Territory and deposit all the documentation for his second claim of the Peralta Grant. This was a large black leather volume embossed with the crest of the noble Peralta family. Inside were photographs and documentation of all kinds, the last will and testament of the first baron, the testament and codicil of the second baron leaving everything to Carmelita, plus all the supporting documents of the grant's inception and initial survey. Then there was Carmelita's birth certificate from the mission of San Salvador near San Bernardino, the paperwork for her civil marriage to Rivas, and all other sorts of supporting documents for her lineage and legitimacy. Now, the man behind the desk receiving all of this was not Royal A. Johnson, the surveyor whose thorough study of the last claim had led to him being castigated by pretty much everybody, and to the government basically telling him to shut down his investigation. Like we saw when we talked about the revolving door of governors at the beginning of the 1890s, national politics had reshaped the map. Johnson was a Republican, so when Grover Cleveland won the presidency in 1884, he was out. The man Rivas was now dealing with was a loyal Democrat named John Heiss. And this actually wasn't a good thing for the would-be baron. Many of his supporters, such as Conkling, were Republicans, while Heiss was a good friend with Congressional Delegate Marcus Aurelius Smith, who would be re-elected in 1887 because of his tough stance on land claims. Smith would actually argue against creating any sort of land-grant court, and specifically mentioned the nightmare scenario of Rivas and those like him, bringing a suit in that court that the common men and women living in the Peralta Grant couldn't hope to fight. Still, Heiss, like his predecessors, had to file the claim because that was his job. But Rivas took things a step further, filing for an immediate survey of the boundaries of the grant, just to make doubly sure that he knew exactly what he had a right to. He even very generously offered to pay $10,000 to defray the cost of the work. This was something that Heiss did not have to approve, and he didn't. The problem is that surveying the claim would have been tantamount to the government recognizing it in some way, shape, or fashion, which it was not prepared to do. Even after Rivas, through the lawyer Ingersoll, appealed the decision, the General Land Office in Washington replied saying that the survey would carve out the grant from public lands and give the petitioners de facto power of eviction in the area. Also, the paperwork filed with the claim already was pretty specific about the area in question, so a survey didn't seem needed at all. Rivas seems to have taken all of this in stride because, for the moment, he didn't put up much more of a fight while Heiss started on the unenviable task of sorting through the massive pile of paperwork that just landed on his desk. One of the Baron's next moves was to travel into the Sierra Estrella Mountains to, uh, discover the initial monument that he had created a couple years beforehand, and which we talked about last week. 
Now, I want to insert a potential correction into this part of the story. I said last week that Rivas had been accompanied by his bodyguard Cuervo and Carmelita when they originally went looking for a suitable rock to create this monument. Except my sources are kind of muddled about this point, which makes it hard to say for sure, but after further reading, I believe that Carmelita was not with him on the original clandestine act of historical vandalism. However, she was with him on a second trip to visit the monument after he filed the second claim. And on this occasion, he made sure to have a photographer handy to take Carmelita's likeness in front of this monument while she wore a gold necklace with the same crest stamped in it. You can bet that he made sure that photo was sent to papers all over Arizona and nationwide, including Santa Fe, San Francisco, New York, and Washington, D.C. However, despite his triumphant return to Arizona, Rivas did not set up shop like he had done the previous time. Author E.H. Cookridge gives his opinion that Rivas's need for luxury had outgrown the modest estate he had built at Arizona. And everyone does mention that now he was dressing in the finest broadcloth suits while his wife had numerous silk dresses. He also traveled widely, often hopping from New York to Washington to the West Coast, where, of course, he would stay in the best hotels. Rivas also built a house down in Chihuahua, where the Mexican population fully supported and welcomed him. He would spend $2,000 for a monument and drinking fountain in Monterey to honor the first baron of Arizona who had briefly lived there at some point in his fictitious history. To sum up, Rivas was now a tycoon such as only America's Gilded Age could really produce, and he was doing his best to live like one. But the other reason he didn't stay too long in Arizona is, well, everybody hated him. The newspapers were now all very much aware of the second filing, and they had lost none of their vitriol toward him. The Tucson citizen would observe, quote, It seems the woes of Arizona were never to end. First come the Apaches, and then the blackmailers, and the land grabbers, end quote. The paper then went on to be a bit more threatening when it said, quote, If Rivas will put in an appearance in the Salt River Valley and press his suit with the same brazen effrontery, he will get a decision in his favor mighty quick if Judge Lynch can only be induced to hold court, and there is but little doubt that in this particular instance, he will gladly preside, end quote. I don't know about you, but if a newspaper was calling for people to lynch me, I might stay away from that place too. Suffice it to say that Rivas never went to Phoenix, and he was only in Arizona from time to time to check up on this or that. So it's with some irony that he made the claim to one reporter in Los Angeles that, quote, The feeling in Arizona is favorable to my suit, I assure you. This is proved at every election when those who are on my side are invariably elected, end quote. It goes without saying that every election in Arizona actually showed quite the opposite result. The real irony here, though, is that Rivas's bogus companies had actual engineers and surveyors who were doing really good work planning for dams and irrigation canals, some of which would actually come to life in coming decades. Rivas would glamorize and inflate these projects to the point of impracticality, but if he had possessed a modicum of selflessness, he could have actually done some good for people living in the Sonora Desert, even if he didn't really own the land he was trying to build on. But Rivas didn't possess a modicum of selflessness. Instead, he was all about making sure his position was unassailable so the money could keep coming in. 
To that end, during one of his trips across the country, he stopped by to see Mary Ann Willing, the woman who more than 15 years earlier had treated him with hospitality and darned his socks while her husband had talked Revis's ear off about this strange bundle of papers he possessed. As I mentioned at the end of last week, Marianne had gotten just the tiniest fraction of the $30,000 promised her by Revis, and she had engaged a lawyer to see if she could get what she was owed. Revis now struck a new bargain with her, paying her $600 and $100,000 in stock for his new company. This settled the matter definitively, though he was known to send her $100 here and there, as well as some nice dresses for old time's sake. Another stop was to Sherwood Valley in California, where he went searching for people to swear to certain elements of Carmelita's backstory. But I'm going to save those details until we reach the point when they all came out in open court. It was a good thing he was trying to tie up some loose ends because it's around this point that the players destined to take down the Baron started poking holes in his story. Though Revis claimed that everyone supported him and that the Court of Private Land Claims had established the Peralta Grant's boundaries and practically made everything a done deal, the exact opposite was the case. First off, his great supporter, Senator Roscoe Conkling, died in April 1888 during a blizzard that struck New York, literally known as the Great Blizzard of 1888. This was a heavy blow because the Republicans managed to win the 1888 presidential election, which saw Benjamin Harrison assume the highest office in the country. A Republican-controlled White House and Conkling's influence might have been able to strong-arm officials into deciding things Revis's way. But an even worse result of this is that it meant that Democrat John Heist was out as the U.S. Surveyor General for Arizona. And the new Republican appointee? None other than Royal A. Johnson, the deliberate, studious, and dutiful Surveyor General whose long investigation had led to the defeat of Revis's first claim. Johnson, who resumed his office in July 1889, was familiar with the grant in question and had already scrutinized a lot of the documents involved as part of his first investigation. However, awaiting him in his office was another nugget. A report by Heist that was either half done or finished but not yet released concerning the Peralta Grant. It was not as detailed as the report that Johnson would complete, but it did cast serious doubts on the veracity of the documentation that Revis had submitted. In September 1889, the Commissioner of the Land Office sent Johnson a note saying that certain individuals, most likely Revis and or his legal representatives, were asking about getting copies of the maps and other documents submitted as part of the Peralta Grant. Appended to this note was a quick question from the commissioner. Could you please just let me know what the status of this whole thing is? Johnson must have salivated because it was the opening he needed to finally put out into the world everything he had been working on before he'd been told in 1885 that he had to give up the investigation. So on August 12th, 1889, he dropped a bombshell on his superiors in Washington with a lengthy document titled Adverse Report of the Surveyor General of Arizona, Royal A. Johnson, upon the alleged Peralta Grant, a complete expose of its fraudulent character. I guess it goes without saying that Johnson's report was not in favor of Revis's claim. 
there's a lot to unpack in this report, so let me try and walk you through this the best I can, though I admit it wades deeply into the weeds. Johnson had examined the title sheet of the original deed, purportedly coming from the second baron to Dr. Willing to Revis, and discovered that it was a brittle piece of parchment that was made up of several smaller pieces put together. On only one of these strips was the name Peralta actually found, but appeared to have been added just to connect the Peralta family to what were otherwise unrelated documents. On other pages, Johnson compared the type, the actual block type used for printing, with others made in Mexico around the same time and found them quite different, especially in the use of the long S, an archaic form of the letter S that actually looks a lot like the letter F. Another strike was a page that, after close examination of both its contents and position relative to other papers, led logically to the conclusion that it had been surreptitiously inserted into the archives. And this is something Johnson would find as a whole, that anything that vaguely hinted at the grant that could be inserted had been inserted, and it all smelled very badly of fraud. Furthermore, Johnson had corresponded with various archives in Mexico and Spain and couldn't seem to find any other evidence that this grant had been given or that the Peralta family existed at all. He even consulted with historian Herbert Howe Bancroft, who just a year before had published a history of Arizona and New Mexico that went back to 1530. The historian said the tale was plausible, but it was remarkable that no other historical records mentioned the first baron who supposedly was such a prominent figure that the king granted him so much land. But believe it or not, everything I just said were not the biggest strikes against Rivas's claim. It's here that Clark Churchill, the Arizona attorney general that had beaten Rivas in court in 1885, again rears his head. An expert in Spanish, Churchill had read the documents and submitted his analysis, which Johnson helpfully put into his report. Some of these documents contained errors in basic spelling, grammar, and syntax that were impossible for native speakers to make. One of these was supposedly King Ferdinand VI's decision to issue the grant, which would have been dutifully written by the king's chancellor, the Duke of Toronto, who managed to make a number of these errors in just four short lines. I'm trying to think of the best analogy I can for English, but imagine someone handed you a document supposedly written by an educated man who spelled the word signed with two G's, misspelled the month of December, and overall sounded like a wonky Google Translate mishap. Basically, Churchill concluded that whomever had written the documents was an American who spoke bad Spanish. Another major discovery was when Johnson analyzed the handwritten portions and found evidence they had been written not with a quill, but with a still-nib pen, something invented after 1800 that the purported writers of these documents would not have had access to. I will throw in here that you'll sometimes see it written that they also discovered that one of the pages had the watermark for a Wisconsin paper mail that had been in business for only 12 years or so. Even early state historian James H. McClintock, writing in the early 20th century, so not that far removed from the actual events, includes this in his retelling of the Peralta Grant. But this story is apocryphal and not supported by everything else we know about Rivas, who was methodical and meticulous and went out of his way to obtain the right paper for his schemes. Sure, he made some rookie mistakes as we just saw, but using such obviously modern paper was not one of them. 
The last major thing to come out of Johnson's report actually brings us back around to Tom Whedon, the editor of the Florence Enterprise and a determined Revis foe. Whedon heard that Churchill was collaborating with Johnson on this report and sent his assistant, Bill Truman, to Tucson to report on this and to take a close look for himself at Revis's documentation. Bill arrived at the Surveyor General's office and was actually allowed to view some of the documents, especially the printed ones because Bill so happened to be a typography geek who had actually hand-carved some typing blocks to allow the Enterprise to print using bigger headlines. And much to his astonishment, he recognized the typography used to print this supposedly century-old document. He was positive it was a kind of gothic-looking ornate type that was sold by a company out of San Francisco, one that definitely had not been around in the late 1700s. After a bit of confirming, it was pretty clear that this type had been used as the one most closely matching what Rivas had seen during his searches of the archives in Mexico. Johnson's final report concluded that the claim should be dismissed out of hand, and that persecution should begin immediately against anyone involved in the forging and fabrication of these clearly doctored papers. He described it as being a, quote, brazen fraud, and said, quote, it being, to my mind, without the slightest foundation, in fact, and utterly void. End quote. And once the report became known to the public, the response, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, was enormous. The only word my sources used to express the sentiment spilling out from the newspapers of the time is jubilation. Everyone was quick to line up behind Johnson and praise his thoroughness and attention to detail even if just four years beforehand, those had been categorized as his worst qualities. Back in 1884 and 1885, newspapers had run slanderous stories about Johnson being in league with Rivas and how his actions were a grave disservice to the territory and the people in it. At least the Phoenix Herald was aware of this fact, as they admitted, quote, No one has criticized Johnson more than we, and these criticisms were founded largely on his own statements— but no one will do Mr. Johnson complete justice for his actions on behalf of the settlers sooner or more heartily give him credit for standing by them in their time of need than the Herald, End quote. And it was the Herald, after learning that Johnson was making a trip to Phoenix in the spring of 1890, that called for the public reception that was held in his honor. By the way, I mentioned this public reception back in episode 132 as one of the few positive things that Governor Lewis Wolfley was able to do during his short administration. But while the people in Arizona celebrated, people in Washington started scowling. In February 1890, four months after submitting his report, Johnson received a note from the commissioner of the land office that basically said, Dude, what the heck? I asked you to just briefly tell me what was the status of the Peralta grant because some people were asking about it, not to spend your time and energies on generating a giant exhaustive report that was just going to stir up a whole lot of trouble. Cookridge characterizes this letter, which ran nine pages, as being both hot and cold. It couldn't deny the evidence that Johnson had presented in his report, but neither would it come out and just admit that the Peralta grant was a fraud and Revis a charlatan. It's more than likely that Rivas's political contacts in Washington started exerting influence to either have the report taken back or to somehow get around this obvious roadblock. 
But just like had happened in 1885, it appeared that the land office just didn't want to deal with all the drama. And so the letter concluded by saying that Johnson should, quote, strike the case from your docket and notify Mr. Revis of the action, allowing the usual time for an appeal, end quote. If people had lost their minds over Johnson's report, imagine what they thought when the government told the Surveyor General to just deny the claim and move on already. However, some, such as Whedon down in Florence, tempered their enthusiasm. Johnson's report was all well and dandy, and it struck a huge blow against this false claim, but it was only the opening salvo in a knock-down, drag-out fight to come. The present ruling, Whedon told his readers, is the first blood for the settlers, but there are several hard rounds yet to be contested before the claimants are ready to throw up the sponge. He wrote that because Revis could still appeal, and because he and his allies had championed the establishment of a land court, which could really rule on all these cases that the government just wasn't interested in tackling. But rather than appealing, Revis, his wife, and even the Southern Pacific Railroad for some reason, came together in 1890 and sued the U.S. government. Their complaint said that the United States had denied their constitutional right for their property to be treated equal to other claimants, that it had extended surveys of public land onto property that was rightfully theirs and opened it up for settlement, basically cashing in on what they considered the sale of private property. The complaint went on to say that they had heard about some report produced by the U.S. Surveyor General for Arizona, but they'd not been able to get their hands on a copy, so they really didn't know what it said. And if you believe that, I have a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. Finally, the suit demanded an initial judgment of $6 million in damages already suffered, and an injunction forbidding the government from any further actions that would damage their property. On top of that, it asked for $5 million in damages suffered because they couldn't develop water rights. And just in case the $11 million in damages wasn't enough, the suit made it clear that claims for further relief and costs would be forthcoming. We are now entering Act 3 of the Peralta Grant drama, as the whole fraud will have its day in court. So join me next week as Revis tries to defend his rapidly decreasing pile of sand, which, surprise surprise, will involve a fair amount of trickery, chicanery, and more than just a bit of perjury. But, in the end, this protracted court case will bring the final curtain down on this whole, long, drawn-out saga. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.